You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, a fascinating week in which the B word, B for breakthrough that is, has been heard everywhere. The Ukrainians are claiming that what we're seeing now on the battlefields of Zaporizhia Oblast and the Bakhmut area are small victories that collectively could bring about a decisive and favorable shift in their fortunes. You may think, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But this assessment is now being endorsed by various sober think tanks and analysts. That's right. And there's plenty of evidence to show that things really are going Ukraine's way at the moment, not least the spectacular cruise missile attack on the Russian Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol, which may have killed a top commander and at least 30 officers. The Ukrainian capability to hit Sevastopol and indeed the Kerch Bridge, both key targets in their campaign to retake Crimea, will only increase thanks to the very overdue announcement that the US is at last going to let Kyiv have supplies of the long-range ATAC-Ms. There have also been very significant developments on the diplomatic front, what with President Zelensky's visit to the US and Canada, but much closer to home, right on the doorstep, in fact. There's trouble with Ukraine's next-door neighbour and, until now, stalwart ally in the fight with Russia, yes, Poland. The row over Ukrainian grain exports has turned really nasty, with Warsaw threatening to cut off military aid. We'll be looking at all that. But first, we'll bring us up to date on the fighting on the ground and what it means. Well, the fighting in western Zaporizhia Oblast looks to be raging as fiercely as ever, and it's the same encouraging but nonetheless painful story of small incremental gains adding up to a general picture of progress that, try as they might, the Russians have not been able to halt. The direction of progress is, as ever, towards Militopol, and the next immediate objective appears to be the settlement of Vebove, where the Ukrainians seem to have gained some sort of foothold, although Russian sources claim that they've been pushed back. 
Well, as always, it's hard to get a clear picture as you get contradictory reports. For example, other Russian sources with links to the Russian airborne VDV forces are saying that Ukrainian forces control half of Verbove as of a few days ago. What's the significance of this settlement? Well, it's just to the southeast of Robotinye, inside a very tough stretch of the defensive line and presumably considered necessary to protect the eastern flank as they push on to Tokmak, that key way station on the way to Melitopol. What is not in doubt is that Ukraine continues to advance in this area. Only yesterday, a Kremlin-affiliated mill blogger claimed that Ukrainian forces had reached the northern outskirts of Novopro-Kopivka, which is 13 kilometers south of Orykiv and slightly southwest of Verbove. How significant is all this? Well, very, according to the respected and generally very cautious think tank, the Institute for the Study of War, which noted last Thursday that Ukrainian armored vehicles are operating beyond the final line of the Russian defensive layer that Ukrainian forces in western Zaporizhia oblast are currently penetrating. Now, it followed this up on Saturday with the statement that Ukrainian forces have broken through Russian field fortifications west of Verbove in western Zaporizhia oblast. And they went even further, or at least George Barrios, their chief analyst, did when he tweeted that this was a tactical breakthrough, but that it was too early to tell if the Ukrainians were likely to convert this into an operational breakthrough. But in general, the um, the counteroffensive is turning out to be very different from how it was envisaged at the beginning, isn't it, Saul? Indeed, including by us, it has to be said. Now, this is a point that was made in an excellent article by Natalia Bogayova, again of the Institute of the Study of War. Uh, it's on their website. It's more of an editorial, really, and it's entitled It's Time for the West to Embrace Ukraine's Way of War, Not Doubt It, which pretty much sums up her argument. Now, think back to the start of the summer, the talk was then all about tanks. Now, we're only beginning to hear about tanks actually getting onto the battlefield. But back then, you know, the scenario was that these US, British, German, Polish main battle tanks that had been uh, gifted or were in the process of being handed over to the Ukrainians were supposed to spearhead this uh, spectacular kind of uh, piercing of the Russian lines, crashing through these uh, defenses in what the Ukrainians themselves have mocked as a sort of Hollywood movie cavalry charge and finish off the job in short order. Well, of course, reality intruded in the shape of the very deep and well-prepared uh, Russian layer of defense. So the Ukrainians did what any successful military does. It thought again and it adapted accordingly, choosing instead limited operations, largely using dismounted Troops. Now, there is armor involved. You see uh, what you see when you're looking at the videos is armored fighting vehicles, you know, making these dangerous journeys, short journeys to deliver infantry uh, to the front line where, you know, very old fashioned sort of hand to hand uh, trench by trench sort of battles ensue with the infantry feeling their way forward and bringing to pressure to bear in the bigger picture on key points which fix the Russians where they are, so they can't afford to actually move out of there to reinforce. At the same time, of course, the Ukrainians are battering away constantly at the rear areas. When you step back from it, it's it's a kind of orchestral approach almost to war, isn't it? So there are all sorts of instruments involved, and they're being used in harmony to create maximum discord 
for the Russians, just like we've been seeing in Crimea, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this really was a classic operation, one that will be talked of, I'm sure, long after the war is over. And it was a demonstration of Ukrainian military prowess that is up there, I think, with the sinking of Moskva back in April last year. That, of course, was the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. And once again, this attack was directed at the very heart of the Black Sea Fleet, or in this case, the men who commanded. It now seems likely that the cruise missile strike on the Black Sea Fleet HQ in Sevastopol killed or badly injured Admiral Viktor Sokolov, along with 34 of his officers on Saturday, as well as rendering the HQ unusable. Now, the Russians, needless to say, are claiming that Sokolov is alive and have posted a video of him looking pretty unwell, I have to say, and not saying much. But whether this is old footage, which some suspect, only time will tell. What is not in doubt is that the Ukrainians were able to take out a high-level meeting of the Russian military leadership in Crimea with a precision strike. And once again, it seems that the British Storm Shadow missiles, or SCALP, the French equivalent, were used. Now, what is really striking here is the degree of coordination at every level needed to bring something like this off. The strike itself required a layered approach with an initial drone attack to confuse the defences and opening up the window for the missile strike. But just think about it. To achieve that death toll, the Ukrainians had to know the fact and timing of that meeting. There have been suggestions that this was supplied by British and American intelligence. Ukrainian sources, on the other hand, suggest disaffected Russian sailors tipped off partisans in return for money. Apparently, they haven't been getting their back pay. But wherever they got the intel from, the fact that they were able to action it in this spectacular way is truly impressive and will surely be deeply demoralizing for the Russians, as well as presenting them with the practical difficulties of replacing the dead or injured commander and staff and finding a new and more secure base to operate from. Now, this comes on top of two more really quite spectacular attacks. I mean, one took place actually in Russia itself, in the Kursk region, where a drone landed on the airfield, was then inspected by a number of people, including apparently the commanding officer of the aviation unit, and it then blew up, killing both him and a number of his officers. I mean, really, truly extraordinary, if that's accurate. And there was also an attack on the Saki air base in Crimea. And again, drones were used to confuse the Russian air defences around the air base, which opened the way for Ukrainian Neptune anti-ship missiles, which of course have been adapted to be used against ground targets, to destroy up to 12 Su-24 and Su-30 fighters that were on the tarmac at the base. I'm sure we're only going to see more of this sort of thing, though, Patrick, and we've seen plenty already. That's right, Saul. Ukraine finally might be getting at the wherewithal to really tighten the screws on Crimea with this announcement that the deliveries of American ATAC-Ms will begin, quote, soon. That's the best timing we've got on that. Now, listeners will have heard us going on about the necessity of this for months. The big thing about them, of course, the ATAC-Ms, is their range, which is up to a maximum of 100 and 90 miles. Storm Shadow's got a range of about 140 miles. They're pretty portable. This is ATAC-Ms. They can be launched from a high Mars launcher off the back of a lorry, effectively. And uh, this will all be really extremely useful to the Ukrainian strategy of striking rear areas, disrupting supply lines, forcing logistic hubs back to a safe distance, and generally making resupply maintenance of their forces in occupied Ukraine much more difficult. And just one successful strike, say they managed to land one on, a, on the Kerch Bridge, which is now handily within range, could have a massive effect. But of course, what it does also 
do is uh, relieve the pressure on other munitions, other supplies, particularly the precious storm shadows, which uh, are very, very expensive and they haven't got that many of them. And it also has the effect of adding another layer of problems for the uh, Russian air defences. They've got to now deal with this uh, extra threat and it may get to the point where, where the their air defence batteries are completely overwhelmed. So it is good news, but as always, the good news is countered by some caveats. You know, the American reports suggest that the ATAC-Ms are going to be coming only in small numbers. And instead of carrying a single warhead, the sort of thing you'd need to take out the Kerch Bridge, they're carrying cluster bomblets. What do you make of that detail, Saul? Yes, well, a couple of extra things to add, Patrick. The other, the other significant thing about the ATAC-Ms, particularly when you compare them to the storm shadows, is the speed at which they travel. So it takes about 15 minutes for a storm shadow uh, at its maximum range to reach its target. The ATAC-Ms, five minutes. And this is hugely important, of course, because it means if you're targeting a meeting like the one that there was on the Crimea or indeed mobile missile launchers, uh, it's much harder for the enemy to get the early warning that a missile is incoming and do anything about it. Although, of course, we've seen on Crimea, Patrick, that even with 15 minutes warning, uh, the Russians weren't able to do anything about that attack. There also seem to be worries. I, I think this business about bomblets as opposed to a single warhead is, of course, all part and parcel of the worry in the White House that the use of ATAC-Ms will be seen as a provocation and tr trigger some kind of escalation for the Russians. But, you know, we go once again to what could that escalation mean short of a nuclear war? And it's really hard to know what that is. The British have shown that it's perfectly acceptable to use these missiles against targets in Crimea, which, of course, is technically Ukrainian. And the Americans have probably accepted that, too. There's also some other good news coming out of the Zelensky visit to Washington, which is that Abrams' main battle tanks have finally arrived in Ukraine. How many? Well, at least two platoons already, which equates to between eight to 10 tanks, according to US defense sources, and more will soon be on their way, up to a total of about 30. They have already arrived months ahead of initial estimates and in time to be used in Kyiv's counteroffensive against Russian forces. So we spoke about the breakthrough already, Patrick. They could soon be joined by Abrams' tanks, particularly if they're through the worst of the Russian defences. The visit overall seems to have gone reasonably well, but things aren't quite so rosy on the diplomatic front at home, are they, Patrick? Well, they didn't actually go entirely smoothly uh, in Canada Either, it has to be said, Saul, there was a rather embarrassing moment when President Zelensky was addressing the Canadian House of Commons. And when he'd finished, the Speaker of the House gave a tribute to an elderly gentleman who was sitting in the public gallery, who he praised as both a great Canadian and a great Ukrainian. And uh, this brought a huge um, round of applause, uh, including from President Zelensky himself, it turned out later that the elderly gentleman was a 98-year-old Ukrainian volunteer for the Waffen-SS uh, during the Second World War, and apparently a pretty unrepentant one at that. So huge embarrassment all round. Though it has to be said, these things happen. I, mean, I remember way back in 1985, President Reagan visited Germany in a kind of uh, reconciliation uh, gesture. He went to a German war grave at Bitburg in what, what was then, of course, West Germany. Now, um, again, it turned out uh, that among the graves were, were a bunch of, uh, of dead Waffen-SS men. 
Now, this again, this, this there was a huge fuss created about that, but it turned out that it was just one of those things that happened. You know, it was just a, t- a terrible cock up. The reason was that when the U.S. Embassy staff were doing the recce to set up the visit, it was the middle of winter. So they saw this graveyard. They thought, oh, it's pretty near the, where the meeting's going to take place. But the graves were all covered in snow. Uh, it was when the snow melted that it revealed uh, that uh, the awful uh, presence of the SS dead. So all it tells you is you can't be too careful, can you? Anyway, I'm digressing. Um, but no, the thing that we're talking about here is, is this spat between Kiev and Warsaw. And it's all been brought about by the Ukrainian grain that's flooding into uh, Europe as a result of the war, the fact that it can't uh, or has great difficulty getting its grain out via the Black Sea, thanks to the uh, Russian aggression there. Basically, Poland's right-wing law and justice party government wants to ban the sale of of Ukrainian grain inside Poland. And this is really to appease the farmers who make up a big part of their support. There's a parliamentary election coming up, which it may well lose. However, Ukraine has fought back with talk of suing Poland through the World Trade Organization, which uh, in turn has uh, led the Poles, or the Polish Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, to say that Warsaw may stop supplying Ukraine with weapons and instead focus on building up its own defense capabilities. Well, it sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? But... I can't take it too seriously. Um, I mean, Warsaw all along has understood very well that uh, Poland and Ukraine are completely on the same side, have a massive shared interest in combining to face uh, this threat from Russia, and that in time, I think this will all blow over. What do you think, Saul? Well, I double-checked all of this with our resident Polish expert and co-host Roger Morehouse, and he says pretty much the same thing, Patrick. He did point out, though, I have to say, that there is a long uh, tradition of enmity between the two countries, going all the way back to the end of the First World War and, indeed, history beyond that. So there is, as Roger put it, no love lost between the two countries, but they have a, a greater enemy, or at least a common enemy, that is going to bind them together for the foreseeable future and, indeed, the longer future of of course, if and when, uh, and we think it is a question of when, Ukraine becomes a member of NATO. And therefore, yes, there will be border differences to come and economic differences and cultural differences. But frankly, this existence of Russia will make the alliance between uh, Ukraine and Poland survive for the foreseeable future. Okay, well, that's enough for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be answering listeners' questions. Welcome back. Well, first up, we've got some information from a listener relating to something that was asked about last week, and we thought um, it would be good to pass this on. Now, this one comes from Ian Nesbitt. Ian was an army doctor himself, and it concerns a query uh, which we aired in the previous episode from another army medic, uh, Richard Appleby, about how the war is shaping the treatment of battle injuries. And uh, Ian writes, um, dear both, big fan of the pod. It's a great project and please carry on the good work. Well, thank you for that, Ian. We'll do, we'll do our best. Um, and he's basically just pointing people in the direction of, of various sites, which which give you know good up-to-date, in-depth information about medical care in Ukraine. Well, he, he starts off with something that we both know well, don't we, uh, Saul? 
the arse, A-R-R-S-E, <laughs> typical military humor, that website, www.arrse.co.uk, and just look out for the Ukraine medical care thread, which compiles lots of new, various news reports over the year, puts it all together in one place. Well, it's, I've often gone to arse, if one, I can put it like that, for stuff about you know my work on the um, on the war in Afghanistan when I was um, writing books about the paras and it was always full of you know great stuff and also a lot of good humour as well. He also points up another one, the David Knott Foundation. I know David Knott of old actually. I used to be chairman of Médecins Sans Frontières UK and David was a big supporter of ours uh, and he's done brilliant work um, in many many war zones. Very very interesting and and courageous guy in his in his work. He's got a a website, the davidnotfoundation.com, or one word. And that foundation has been carrying out programs, medical training missions since 1922 to Ukraine to train surgeons and ethicists in, et cetera, in military trauma care. And uh, Ian suggests we try and interview David at some future point. Very good idea. Now, he also comes up with, um, with some uh, relative casualty figures or survival rates, I suppose it is, which are interesting. And his calculation is he suggests that the Russian forces are suffering about 40% killed in action, while the Ukrainians are suffering 25 to 30% killed in action. We're talking here about survival rates. Yeah, that's that must be dead to wounded comparison, Patrick. I'm, I'm guessing that's what that yeah, is. Yeah, that sounds about right. Dead to wounded comparison. But he lines that up against something that he will know about directly, uh, Afghanistan, ISAF in Afghanistan, uh, had a 10% uh, killed in action rate to a sort of, I suppose, a 90% survival rate. And there's various other references to that, which I'm afraid I can't read out here. But anyway, it'd be pretty easy to track those down. And yeah, he's, he's a little sign off for you here, Saul. He says, Jagdish says hello. Uh, I think Saul was his PhD survivor a couple of years ago. Do you remember Jagdish? I do indeed. In fact, he's giving me rather a, a grander title than I deserve. I was actually his master's supervisor. But yes, Jagdish was a, a former military medic, uh, which is presumably why they know each other. Uh, and he came and did an excellent master's on the First World War, I seem to remember. And uh, so hello, Jagdish, if you're listening. Um, yeah, and thank you for all of that. Absolutely fascinating. I've got actually uh, an interesting update here from David Alexander, Patrick. I'm, I'm not going to read it all out because it's too much detail as ever. But thank you, David. He's our resident cybersecurity expert. But uh, it's been a few weeks and he does point out there's a fair amount to talk about. I won't go through all of it, but I'll just bring out the main points. And the first of them is that it's fairly typical, he says, when uh, Zelensky is abroad and visiting various NATO countries, that there is then a cyber attack on those countries. And that seems to have happened with Canada, Patrick mentioned Canada earlier, the government of Quebec, according to David, was hit with a denial of service style attack, like electronic jamming to use up all the internet bandwidth and stop genuine users being able to access their websites. Now, these uh, also attack the Ministry of Defense or the defense industries, with some being off air temporarily. The disruption didn't last long, with government and commercial resources brought to bear on defeating the attacks. And in David's opinion, or David says, I'm surprised the attacks succeeded even temporarily. As a Five Eyes nation, the Canadians have access to all the latest threat intelligence, and they're good at cyber detection and defence. I can only assume that Quebec hadn't fully imp implemented the right level of cyber defence before Zelensky's visit. A couple of other quick points. Russia appears to have found a new way of generating some revenue, or at least its criminal gangs have. 
and that's by laundering cryptocurrency which North Korea has stolen. So North Korea then, you know, wants to launder this cash and it takes it to these Russian organized crime gangs. And the last point I'm going to read out, and this is interesting, of course, given our earlier discussion on the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and it, says David, has been hacked, the Dutch National Cybersecurity Center. It has good skills, says David, I rate them highly, is supporting the investigation, but will not comment. It never does. The ICC charged Putin with war crimes and issued an arrest warrant for him earlier this year, as we reported. So the prime suspect for this has to be Russia. They will want to know what the court knows, future intentions, who else might be charged, and who the witnesses are. Uh, And David signs off with a little bit of humour. Cup of polonium tea, anyone? (laughs) Just going back to those casualty figures, Saul, I've just been reflecting on them a bit. And um, there is quite a dramatic difference, isn't there, between the survivability rates on the battlefield in Ukraine and um, and in compared with Afghanistan, I mean, the obvious reasons for that one is the the nature of the weaponry. I mean, the Taliban are fighting with um, kit that is uh, very limited in, in damage it can actually inflict. We're talking really about you know rocket propelled grenades, rifles, the odd Chinese rockets. They were called rather sort of primitive things. You know, nothing like the killing power that is being utilized by both sides in Ukraine. So that's one explanation. The other, obviously, is the fantastic um, quality of the of the British medical setup there with the ISAF medical facilities, you know, very, very fast times getting soldiers wounded on the front lines back to a top of the range, 21st century operating setup back at base. So, yeah, that I think that uh, does explain the... D- the disparity. Um, be interested to hear other thoughts on that. Okay, we're just going to change the sort of tempo a bit now, relating back to our last episode when uh, from our, tra- our trip to Ukraine, when we visited Club Positive, this uh, centre uh, rehabilitating children who were suffering from war trauma uh, just outside Kiev. And uh, a listener called Naomi says. Um, that she'd heard this and, and would like to find out more about Club Positive and how to support them. Do we have any contact details? Well, there's one quick way of getting to the wonderful lady who, who we talked to and who's the kind of spirit behind the place, I suppose, in a way, and that's uh, Oksana, Oksana Sliapova. And her Instagram is just that, Oksana, O-K-S-A-N-A, Sliapova, S-L-I-E-P-O-V-A. Now, I must admit, Saul, I found that aspect of our trip very, very moving. How could it not be? And, you know, really equally uplifting. Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. It was one of the most affecting days we spent, actually, that whole day, in fact, of course, because we went on from, from Club Positive to Butcher, where we heard that very dramatic testimony from the man who we dubbed the gravedigger of Butcher. But the club itself is doing wonderful work with the children of, of veterans, but not just veterans, but people caught up in the war. One other way to get hold of Oksana and Club Positive is via Oksana's Twitter account, which is at Oksana, that's O-K-S-A-N-A, hyphen Slipova, S-L-I-E-P-O-V-A. Uh, and if you send her a message on that, I'm sure she will tell you how you can support the club. Uh, in a related question, Sue Richards asks, what's the best way to send money to Ukraine? She started she started to do it via various humanitarian agencies, but then read complaints from Ukrainians that it wasn't getting through. Apparently, this is because 
due diligence requirements make it uh, a difficult process and she's trying to find a faster route. She's tried doing it via the National Bank of Ukraine, but uh, this has created problems with her local UK bank. Well, I'm afraid we haven't got an immediate answer to that, Sue, but uh, it's something that we can look into and we'll get back to you uh, next week, hopefully, with with some advice. There's plenty of people who can uh, tell us what is the best way to actually make a contribution, financial contribution, if that's what you want to do. Yeah, and if you're British, I think that probably the best thing to do is go to the government website, that's GovUK, uh, and the section Ukraine, what can you do to help? Because that will give you the various, how can I put it, official um, charities that that will take in money and will actually uh, allow you to do that. So have a look at that, and that might answer your question. Okay, we've got an interesting question from Ian in Canada, uh, and he says, uh, reaching out with a question that may be outside your comfort zone. Well, we'll be the judges of that. Right now in the US Congress, he says, there is a battle of opinions on the sense of financing the Ukrainian war effort. We've been mentioning that many times. Thank you, Ian. This is clearly a pivotal moment. Failure to finance the Ukrainians is a win for the Russians and a loss for freedom, which leads me to ask, is there another way to finance the Ukrainian war effort? Back in the early days of the invasion, the US confiscated the overseas assets of the Russian Central Bank, amounting to hundreds of billions of dollars. Why not use a portion of these sequestered funds to help the Ukrainians? There was talk a portion of the funds would likely have been used to help rebuild a post-war Ukraine. So why not dip into the funds now? Any thoughts? Yeah, well, I would, um, Ian, refer you back to an interview we did a few weeks back with Dr. Jonathan Boff. I think it's episode number 76, where he addresses this very question. It's tempting, isn't it, to think, okay, why don't we just seize all that Russian loot? There's at least uh, $200 billion worth in frozen European counts alone. But as Jonathan explains, it's more complicated and more interesting than that, not least if you're thinking long-term and about what happens after Putin. If you want to see Russia emerge as a better place from the conflict, then you have to offer some incentives to those who are wishing to rebuild the country as a decent member of world society, and starving them of money is not going to uh, help necessarily. Anyway, Dr. Boff explains all this much better than I can. So go back to episode uh, 76, and I think you'll get your answer. Okay, another question, and this time from Daniel, also from Canada. He's from British Columbia. uh, And he asks, why, given that the US has just committed to giving Ukraine long-range ATAC-M missiles, has it made the announcement public? Surely it would be better, said Daniel, to let the Ukrainians use them in a kind of first strike without the Russians being aware that they've got them. Well, you could ask that question, actually. It's not a bad one. But a couple of points, I think, immediately come to my mind, Patrick, and that is even if the Russians do know they've got them, there's probably not a lot they can do about it. And secondly, of course, these announcements always have an element of politics involved in them. So Biden's administration wants to be seen to be supporting the Ukrainians, but in this kind of drip feed manner. So these announcements are important to its base or what it seems to be its its support base in in the US. Uh, And it's not too concerned, frankly, with the security aspect of the Ukrainians having less chance of using these weapons effectively because the Russians know they've got them. As I say, I don't think it will make much difference. Okay, question from Ian Latham in Australia. Really enjoying your show, but interested to know whether either side claims the great correspondent and novelist Vasily Grossman as part of their narrative. 
As a Jewish-Russian-speaking Ukrainian, I can imagine him having some resonance for both sides in the war. Well, Patrick, you've done a bit of digging into this, haven't you? Yeah, well, I, we, we both know uh, Grossman's work, don't we? Vasily Grossman, you know, very famous in his own time as a uh, as a war correspondent with the Red Army, wrote for Krasnaya Zvezda, Red Star. That was the... Uh, the equivalent, I suppose, of stars and stripes on the, on the American side, and he was there for the whole, for the long haul. You know, all the big battles. He was there for the uh, liberation of Treblinka, I think, the extermination camp. Um, and he was a pretty loyal propagandist, as you say, Ian. He was um, a Jew born in in Ukraine, speaking Russian and Ukrainian, born near Kiev, and actually um, for a while worked in uh, Stalino, which is now Donetsk. He did toe the the party line during the war, but afterwards began to lose faith in the system. And uh, when he wrote his great book, which many considered to be one of the great works of, uh, of Russian literature, it's called Life and Fate, very thoroughly recommended, but you've got to have a lot of time to read it. It's absolutely enormous. Uh, it was suppressed and it only appeared in Russia in 1988. I haven't seen anything that suggests that uh, Ukraine is sort of claiming him as a son of Ukraine, or indeed that he's being put to any propaganda purposes by the Russians either. But it's an interesting question. Uh, thanks for raising it. I'll, I'll have a look into it. Okay, question here from Shanahan. I'm Irish, but write to you from Barcelona, where I live. Spanish state television recently broadcast a report from Ukraine about Colombian soldiers fighting on the front lines and earning monthly salaries of 3,000 US dollars. Highly trained with combat experience, the soldiers interviewed explained they were fighting in order to support their families back in Colombia. Why do you think Ukraine finds it necessary to hire these mercenaries? And do you consider it ethical, especially in light of the Wagner Group's much criticised role in the conflict? Are impoverished soldiers from other nations also making a living in Ukraine. Personally, this story makes me very uncomfortable. Well, um, that's the first I've heard about the Colombian mercenaries fighting on the side of Ukraine. I'm not doubting that it's the case, but you might question uh, whether they're actually serving as mercenaries. I mean, uh, $3,000 a month is not exactly a king's ransom. That's $36,000 a year. I mean, it's hardly big pay, is it? And what's probably going on is that they're fighting within the Ukrainian armed forces. I, I can't say that absolutely categorically Categorically, but that's pretty much what's happening with the International Legion. And yes, of course, as we know, we've heard from Aidan Aslan and others, the Ukrainian government is very happy to to recruit non-nationals to fight on its side. And why wouldn't it? But I think there's a big difference between coming under the, you know, the overall command of the Ukrainian military and these kind of mercenary forces, as in the Russian armed forces, uh, with, of course, Wagner, that are really outside the command structure. So I do see a distinction between the two. Yeah, on the other side of the line, there have been reports, uh, someone sent us an article from the CapEx site, which says that Cuba is sending significant numbers of soldiers to Russia to fight in Ukraine. I mean, it says significant numbers. They don't seem to be enormous. There's a report that 198 Cubans arrived in Russia, came through Moscow's airport during July and August this year in small groups of 10 to 30 people. Now, you know, again, it's not going to make a huge difference on the, on the battlefield. But I suppose one benefit they've got is that they're actually, according to the report, some of them are the, the older age category, which means they're will have some knowledge of the um, of the old Soviet weapon systems currently being deployed in Ukraine. And of course, it is a revival of the old Cuban 
Soviet era cooperation, uh, isn't it? I mean, they were they were as thick as thieves back in the sixties. So there's an old an old alliance being revived there. It seems. Okay, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, Just to remind everyone that we are interested in taking as many questions as possible. So do send them to our email address. uh, And that's battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. And do join us for next Wednesday's big interview, which promises to be really fascinating. Patrick discusses with Francis Scar of the BBC's monitoring service. And he provides some real insights into the Russian media landscape and what the Russians really think about us. Goodbye. Goodbye.